0: Welcome to Codex Rex, the video game history podcast. I'm your host, and today I'm going to tell a story to my friend... Ducks, I am your auxiliary host. So, what have you been up to? Well, so I, I'm i just super swamped, which is I feel how I start off every <laughs> single episode of this podcast. I always are, am like... I am
1: Thailand. I have too much work to do. <laughs> it's, I it's have just, no time for this
0: shit. I don't have time to have fun on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um... Other than that, I beat um, fun stuff. I beat Pokemon Sword and Shield the other day. Uh, I will Nance. say that everyone who complained about the ending of that game is completely warranted. Because what on earth? It's like they totally just rushed. Like they were like, and we need a bad guy
1: right now, and it's this guy, and he's gone. Like so about Pokemon? How mm-hmm. like I'm I'm a bit of a Pokemon traditionalist. Sure, but, they, but with each new generation, they still put out new Pokemon, right? Yeah, yeah. How yeah, yeah. many is there now? Two, one thousand five hundred.
0: I think it's like nine hundred. Um, That's what I. I don't think guessed. it's a thousand yet, because they usually only add about. Well, it depends on the generation, but it's usually somewhere between fifty and a hundred generation and sometimes mm-hmm. they well there might be I don't know it depends on what you count them as, uh, count new Pokemon as sometimes they take old Pokemon and give them regional variants so it'll be like Raichu used to be a Thunder variant now it has a Thunder psychic variant or something like that ah, I see or like Meowth used to be a normal type but in the newest gen it's a Steel type that's like pretty cool that.
1: one day I shall pick up Pokemon again and play it a lot but I don't know when I don't have, I don't have time for that game anymore. It takes a lot of time. <laughs> it's true. Uh, I,
0: I got away with it because I played on stream or I play it while I'm lying in bed. I, I will say that I feel like the newest Pokemon is fun. I will give it fun. And if I have some very specific things that I got grumpy about with it, but if it was like, if it's like your first Pokemon ever, it's a totally fun romp and very silly and the music's great. So other than that, I have been grinding out my, katana zero speed runs again yes didn't you get the new pb i would oh, so yesterday i was on the stream i was like on on track to get like the i'm trying to get below 19 minutes which for me is a big a big thing and i was on track to do it and i died in the last room and it was like i kept dying in the last room and i cost myself 30 seconds and i cost myself my sub 19 and so like anyway it's
1: did you did you feel it coming and the pressure ruined it for you <laughs>
0: maybe. You know, I started speedrunning again because my fiance loves watching me speedrun, which I know is hard to believe, but she's she's truly the one who always asks me to speedrun. She's like, "When are you going to play Katana Zero again?" And, you know, it's it's nice to have someone who's supportive of my insane uh-huh. hobbies. So,
1: <laughs> yes. So enough so, about me. What's up with you? Oh, not much. I do university shit and trying to play play games that don't use a lot of mind, just Stupid things like I play a lot of satisfactory making production lines.
0: I always think of those kind of games. I've categorized them in my head as docs games. Docs games yeah yeah like you I'll look at a that. game and I'll go, that's a docs game.
1: Building intricate machines out of simple parts
0: that's games I like. I have always thought of it as not to psychoanalyze you, but I've always thought of it as a stress reliever because you have complete control over it. That's a good point
1: it is it is a control fantasy. Yeah. Like yeah.
0: unlimited control to make
1: things optimized in a and way that a- each you problem want. that happens is caused by yourself, so you can fix it by right. working on yourself. Right. Mm, nice. That's a really good point about why these puzzle games are appearing on a psychological level. Do yeah. don't yeah. Now I have to think about <laughs> myself for a second. Let's talk about something else. So if one would like to contact us, how, <laughs> how, exactly. Would, exactly. how would one love to do that?
0: Okay, so first things first, you can always email us at codexrexpodcast at gmail.com. And thanks to those who have emailed us Previously, including the person who tried to impersonate the head of Raid Shadow Legends and get me to give away all of our podcast <laughs> info. Uh, no, I don't believe that Raid Shadow Legends wants to give us $4,000 per episode for a sponsorship. What? Nice try. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> Podcast at gmail.com. We are also on Twitter, codexrexpodcast on Twitter. Uh, we post new episode stuff there. We post auxiliary episode stuff there we post dumb memes on there also we're on YouTube same thing Codex Rex podcast Uh, I host all the episodes there and all on all the other streaming services as well and last but not least I stream three days a week on Twitch and so if you want to find me I am just vegan Tyler and that's it that's where you can find
1: us yeah that's uh it's been has has turned into quite the red tail by
0: now but uh, uh <laughs> yes. we have been spreading out we have we're spreading out our tendrils
1: tendrils do you want to start the episode i do then let's do this let's do this shit This is where the music goes. <laughs> what do you you have? What is this about? This 500-hour right. preparation marathon you've been doing.
0: So before we even start, let me give some context here. So this episode, uh, so when I did my last episode, I talked about how we were going to do a deep dive into the fifth generation of consoles. And why the fifth generation of consoles? Because it was when the transition from 2D to 3D really began on the home console market. And, um, you know, so I, fi- I find these consoles fascinating because they're they're very much trying to, to navigate that water. And so as Docs knows, along the way, I got very sidetracked on a story that I found. Um, to- totally
1: unexpected though. We all thought this was going to be a straight project easy peasy 5 episodes <laughs> nobody nobody had the suspicion that this might turn into a 55 episode e boss you're going to tell us nobody i don't know so, any person that would have had that suspicion so i told docs i would give him time
0: to get it all out and so here's your there's your space dude anything you want to say now's your chance said it nobody expected it <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing more to say so, anyway, um, <laughs> let's, let's just get started and you'll see where this insanity goes. Ah, okay. <laughs> okay. Today, we're going to talk about a man named William Murray Hawkins III. William Murray Hawkins III, or as they called him, Trip. Trip. Trip is a good name. So, when I was working on this episode... I often found myself switching between calling him Tripp and Hawkins. So when you hear me say either of those names,
1: Trip or Hawkins or Trip Hawkins, that's who I'm talking about. Okay. Why is he called the third? Is he out of a dynasty where everybody was called Hawkins? Uh, I believe. Mori Ma- Ma- Ma-
0: <sighs> Yeah. So I think, I think he is the third William Murray Hawkins. Hmm. That's a thing in some families for some reason. Right? It is. Yeah. They keep the same name. So his grandfather, his father and himself, I, I assume. Okay. Tripp was born in 1953 in Pasadena, California. Now, there isn't much to say about Hawkins as a kid, but he was really into these pen and paper football games called Stratomatic Pro Football, which is essentially a football game that you play with Dyson cards. Okay, so it's like the 60s, and he's essentially like playing like these competitive football role-playing games like where you make like you make different plays and you can get your friends together and you can have like this league you can play it solo Um, honestly for the 60s this kind of seemed like a pretty cool system for the time and we will come back to it a lot throughout the episode
1: yeah I know it had like a feature in this American show about these Russian Soviet spies called the Americans it shows up in a few episodes because um, the Sun plays it really I've heard of it yeah
0: Oh, that's really cool. So he decides in 1970, at the age of 17, that he is going to start his first business. And he tries to make a knockoff version of the game that he called AccuStat Pro Football. Mm -hmm. And the story goes that he borrowed $5,000 from his dad to get the business off the ground. And he does some stuff with it for a while, even going as far as to advertise his new board game in the programs that they would give you at, like, NFL football games. So, like, you're at a football game, you open up the little booklet that they hand out, and in it would be, like, an advertisement for his board
1: game. Is it that kind of family? Father, I have prepared a business proposal, and I require $5,000. Please. I think it is. (laughs) This, I really think this, this business model will give you profits within the three-year range. Please, I need this money. <laughs> yes, son, here it is. Yes, son, of course. A, a suitable business adventure, if I've ever heard one. But let's make a venture capital contract.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now, son, sign away right here. 6.7% interest. So, so was it going to be
1: a board game too?
0: Pretty much the exact same thing, from what Mm -hmm. I understand, just his knockoff version of it. He was just really into football. And so it's also no surprise that he also played football in high school. Apparently, from what I have read, he was a pretty amazing football player, and he kept that up into college. So Nice. Okay. So in the early 70s, his dad is working with an engineer in San Diego. And this engineer's name is Lane Hauk. I, I'm probably mispronouncing it. H-A-U-C-K. And I guess that somewhere around 1971, Lane buys a PDP-8 and mm-hmm. builds it at his place. And it was big. It was big. So I've looked up some pictures of it and I feel like if I had to guess, it kind of looks like the size of like maybe a mini fridge. Okay. yeah, Maybe bigger than that. It's really hard to get context, but Okay, this guy gets this really rad piece of tech for the time, and it's connected to a printer that can print 10 characters per second. Insane.
1: Yeah, but that was the big deal about the PDP um, series that they tried to implement more and more output versions, uh, output um, accessories?
0: It's true. So Lane used his computer to make a game called Moo. Like mm. like, a cow. like a cow That's the mm. noise a cow makes Moo, M-O-O Essentially, what you would try to do Is you would try to guess a four digit number And you would enter a number randomly And then it would tell you how many moos and cows you had A cow was the right digit in the wrong place And a moo was the right digit in the right place Oh, it's like Mastermind It is it's... like Mastermind, exactly oh, nice. <laughs> So he has Trip try it out and he plays around and Trip beats it on his first round. <laughs> and Lane is like, the fuck? He's not happy. Like, no one can beat that on the first round. That's crazy, right? And Trip's like, wait, was, was I just lucky here? I don't understand. And so this was Trip's first experience with a video game, mm-hmm. okay? Or at least what he considers it to be. Now, Lane is going to leave our story here. But I wanted—I just wanted to fit in a very small side story about him. Goodbye, Lane. Bye, Lane. Lane. See you, Lane. Lane later went on to make arcade games, with one of them being a game called Blockade. Blockade is the basis of the game Snake, which everyone mm-hmm. in the history of ever has played.
1: <laughs> I played it on my Nokia phone.
0: Yeah. Right? You can play it in the Discord app. Like it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's literally oh, I everywhere. for forgot. Yeah, it is. It's a good game. Yeah. I mean, it's simple. And it's in in it's it's simple and fun in that simplicity. Thanks, Lane. Have a, thanks, Lane. Have a nice life. Let's have a nice talk life. About Lane. Trip again. What does Trip do now? Now the timelines here get a little fuzzy, but we know that Hawkins graduates high school and he ends up getting into Harvard. Now, if you're listening and you don't know Harvard, it's a pretty prestigious school in the United States in what we call the Ivy League, which are sort of recognized as like the top universities in the country. Okay. Mm-hmm. So he works with the administration at Harvard to create his own major, strategy and applied game theory is what he majors in at Harvard. Now, during this time, he's also still, I think, working with his board game and his board game is actually published in 1973. And I don't know much about what happened with it, but all we know is that it was pretty much a commercial failure and he dropped the idea. Okay, so the board game's off the table. So then he's like, well, that didn't really work out. And he gets this idea in his head that having played a video game, that he wants to make a digital football game. And he wanted to make a game that people could play football, but they, you know, that that, that would be enjoyable. But he realizes that the people who play the board game, you know, they might be turned off because of like the hard math required on the tabletop version. Okay. Mm. So he's like, I need something for people that can like automate this. Uh, In 1974, he used BASIC to program a simulation of the 1974 Super Bowl on a DEC PDP-11 mini computer. And from what I understand, that's about as far as he got it. I'm not sure who owned the computer. I don't know anything else about it. But anyway, the idea is there. Hold on to it. Okay. Yep. In 1975, he's at Harvard and he's hanging out with some guy who is really into computers. Now, the story I read didn't list this guy's name. Um his friend starts talking to him about how there's a computer for sale somewhere. And his friend is like really excited about the technology of computers. Like I'm sure you've all met that guy, right? Who is just like your, your, your one friend who's super into tech and it's just like, knows all this shit. Well, that was this guy for Hawkins, I guess. And you know, they're talking about computers and Hawkins is like, well, you know, what's really interesting is the thought that like computers are going to become a consumer item. Right. Like you and I have talked previously about how computers were sort of like um, something that a university would own or a government agency would own. But we're starting to hit the cusp of when computers would be a consumer good. And he's like, man, that's like kind of that's kind of cool. Right. Like eventually computers are going to be in everybody's hands. So in the summer of 1975, he makes a decision that he wants to found a video game company. But he realizes it's going to take a while for home computers to catch on. And he imagined that eventually you just go to the store and buy a computer.
1: And he Ooh, says, so he's like a visionary. He's like, there is no computer games yet that everybody can play, but there's going to be, and I'm going to be prepared. Exactly.
0: Yes. Ooh. So here's an interview that he said. Um, I, I love this because these are his exact words. Okay, I thought to myself, Yeah, boy, if you're going to be able to get computers from retail stores, (laughs) this is going to become mass market.
1: Let's see now.
0: (laughs) I swear, I swear to you, the interview said, yeah, boy. Okay. Let's see now. I want to start a company to make entertainment software. When can I do that? That afternoon, I did some analysis and I decided that by 1982, The technology would have made enough progress that I could start an entertainment software company. By that time, there would be enough of these devices in homes to support a software company. So from a a different interview, it's sort of the same thing, right? He says, I thought about how many of these computers were in people's homes, what they would cost, market penetration rates, how people would purchase them, how big of an audience you would need to support if you opened a software company, how big of a fraction of them, computer owners, would be interested in the kind of things that I wanted to do. I don't remember a single number from the analysis, but I remember deciding that 1982 was the year it could all be done. I never forgot that. And from then on, I was always thinking in the back of my mind, 1982, 1982,
1: 1982. But he's been practicing that thinking, right? Because when he did did this um, business proposal to his dad, he already <laughs> also had a business plan, which then failed, but that gave him some practice. And he he might have had a mind like that. Yeah. So,
0: you know, there's a lot of things that have coalesced here, right? So like... His business ventures as a child, you know, seeing the first video game, the, the fact, not the first video game, his first video game, um, you know, the fact that, you know, computers are becoming a consumer good and he sees this business opportunity and he's he's smart enough to know like when this is going to occur that he could make this viable. Yeah, boy. Okay. Yeah, boy. <laughs> <laughs> so he graduates Harvard. And he decides to pursue a Masters of Business Administration at Stanford, another Ivy League school in California. Now, the dates are a little fuzzy here, but I'm pretty sure this was in 1976, and then he graduates in 1978, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Because at Stanford, Tripp meets a guy named Bing Gordon. Yes, like Bing, like the the search search engine. Yep,
1: Bing Gordon. Was he called Bing, or was it a nickname like Trip? I I think his name is Bing. I, I'm actually not sure.
0: <laughs> uh, his name is William Bing Gordon. Bing is a nickname. Okay.
1: Oh, so. I like, honey, how are we going to name our child? How about Bing? <laughs> okay, I guess. <laughs>
0: Yes, his name's William. <laughs> okay. um, but his name is, you know, for the purposes of this, we'll call him Bing. Now, to give you an idea of uh, a little bit about Bing, in an article that I read about him, they called him an outgoing party beast. <laughs> mm, nice. But there, there's a bit of a story of how they met up. So here's Gordon. We were classmates at Stanford Business School. He had just come out of Harvard, where he'd created a major in game design. In school, I was in all the basic introductory classes. He placed out of most of them. He was known in the class as the guy who walked in late after a lunch with one of the pretty
1: females. One of the... these guy's Ferengi. (laughs) I, I have acquired a pretty female. This is how I talk. Yes, this is a suitable mate.
0: <laughs> okay. So-
1: <laughs> I had I had sympathies for these guys until now. It has ended.
0: <laughs> so the gist that you're getting is, is that, um, that Trip is seen as this suave dude who gets mm. all the ladies and is super smart. And Gordon is like this partier guy who is in all of like the basic introductory classes. So how the fuck do these two guys meet up? So Gordon is sitting in class one day. And the professor is asking them questions. And this professor guy, he asks them about their dreams. And the question was, what would you do with your life if money were no object? Gordon raises his hand. He tells the professor that he would create a thematic world inside of a computer where anyone could be a hero and you could talk to other characters who were controlled by the computer. The room goes silent. Nobody knows what to say. They move on. So after class, this lecturer comes over to him and says something to the effect of, well, I don't exactly know what you just said, but there's someone in my other class who said something similar, and his name is Trip Hawkins. So he's like, oh shit, I got to meet this guy, right? So the two of them meet up, and they totally hit it off as friends. And Gordon talks about how different they were. He thought of himself as this writer who had gotten into Stanford, but like didn't have much of an idea of what he wanted to do with himself. But Hawkins, Hawkins was always focused on what he wanted. So the two of them end up renting this apartment together, and the apartment came with a hot tub, and naturally this meant it would be absolute party central. Gordon, we were the party house. I was like a professional partier, and he was learning from me. He was a professional student and I was learning from him. He was a brilliant student and highly focused.
1: <laughs> this is this is like a terrible 90s party animals movie. It really is. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> okay. Now, as a side note here.
0: I don't know the full context, so I just want to be clear. I don't know the full context on this. It was mentioned in passing in one of the interviews, but apparently the two of them did some light work on a on an early console called the Fairchild Channel F. The, the F stands for fun, of course. <laughs> anyway, I don't know what they did with the Fairchild... Fairchild Channel F, but it was spoken of as like some kind of like market research thing they did. It's really not worth getting into because I don't know what they did with it. But Fairchild, the Fairchild was released in 1976 and is credited as the first video game console to use ROM cartridges. Okay, so they have some video game thing they do together. So. I guess Hawkins at this time starts writing all these papers and doing a bunch of research about the future of personal computing, right? Which fits with his whole idea of wanting to start this business, right? So coming from Stanford, he starts using his research to get a foot in the door around Silicon Valley. So here's a quote. I did a study on personal computing I used it as a calling card. So I had an excuse to call up every company in the business. I got to know all of the pioneers of the business at the time. Guys like Chuck Peddle, the guy who designed the 6502 microprocessor, and the Commodore Pet. You know, guys like Steve Jobs. Actually, Apple actually called me to ask me about the study. And I said, well, I'm actually looking for a job. Why don't I come in and we can talk about the study? And that's how I got my interview at Apple. Of course, they thought that they were basically acquiring an instant market research department. Sweet. So he writes a fucking paper and starts calling people. And he's like, I did this really cool research. And uh, it gets around to the point that Apple calls him. So Hawkins and Gordon graduate in 1978. Gordon was off to work as a project manager for a semiconductor company. Mm -hmm. Hawkins no surprise, gets a job working at Apple. And they teased each other a bit um, about their choices between going into hardware and software. Hawkins thought that software was the future, and he didn't understand why Gordon would be going into hardware. Remember, Trip is very future-focused, right? He wants to start this game company. And so he tells Gordon that one day he's going to start up a company around five years from then. 1982. 1982. 1982, 1982. (laughs) And he tells Gordon, be ready to join up. Okay. Okay. So, Tripp starts working at Apple. He was Apple's 68th employee. And during his time there, personal computers start taking off. He was right. A new market starts opening up. People there described him, quote, he was always a gamer, even though it seemed like he was this very slick marketing guy who wore a suit and was impeccably dressed. Now, I'm going to pause right here. Throughout this story, Trip Hawkins, from everything I've read, fucking exudes style. OK, this dude, when he walked into a room, he was like, like the room would be focused around him. And I don't know if that was intentional or not, but like everybody talks about Trip as being like this super suave dude who could just basically work a room without even trying.
1: Wow, this guy seems impressive. Yeah, I think so.
0: I won't lie. I was a little starstruck when I did some of this. Oh, huh <laughs> I, I messaged docs and I was like do you ever have that thing when you're researching somebody for an episode and you think god I hope by the end of this they're not a terrible person
1: <laughs> I, I usually think I bet these guys smell terrible and that's why I also <laughs> think that a guy like this would work great in an environment like this because he, he by not fitting in he fits in great because he fits in because of his expertise but he stands out because of his capability to be A social person, which many people that work in technology are completely incapable of.
0: Oh, I completely agree. Um, It's not a, uh, you know, there's a bit of a stereotype to, um, you know, people who make games sometimes, and it is not completely uh, off the mark. (laughs) But, you know, I do think that culture is changing a little bit in the modern day. Yeah. I, man, I will just never be able to stop thinking of the Crash Bandicoot guys throwing burgers on their ground of their filthy office <laughs> anyway okay so um so hawkins at apple starts working his way into the inner circle apparently he directly worked with steve jobs for a few years and there is a story although i want to note this might be an urban legend okay no one knows that steve jobs took a trip a famous trip to xerox in 1979 and saw a computer that had pop up windows on the interface and that seeing that he like had this like idea that like maybe they didn't know what they had and that he adopted that technology for apple computers mm-hmm. and i guess like the story is that xerox didn't know what they invented right and so regardless of whether or not this is what spawned apple's technological prowess is them like stealing shit from xerox hawkins was with him on that trip. Like that's how close he was to their management.
1: Okay. Yes. Apple adopted something (laughs) to to create their technology. Mm, I see.
0: Oh, look at this lost technology that you've been neglecting. It is a prototype. They
1: were not aware of. We have to say this (laughs) out of legal reasons.
0: (laughs) Of course. So fast forward four years. Apple is up to a thousand employees. Hawkins is the director of product marketing at this time. The company had become publicly traded. And at 26 years old, Hawkins was already a multimillionaire. It was 1982, the fated year. The time to create his own company was nigh.
1: Oh, the pressure.
0: Yeah, boy. Yeah, boy. (laughs) I thought, yeah, boy. It's 1982. (laughs) I don't know why he said, yeah, boy. He's, okay. he's 29 now, right? Uh, in the story, he's, he's 26. 26, okay. 26. Okay. He had about $200,000 of his own money that he could put toward the business. Uh, in today's money, that's closer to $550,000 just for context, but it wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. Now, here's where this guy, Don Valentine, enters the picture. <clears throat> Valentine... What a villain name. Don Valentine, <laughs> my name. is my card.
1: We must go mm-hmm. to
0: the. We must go to the office
1: of Don Valentine. <laughs> I, I we'll already see. love the names of the people in this. Don <laughs> Valentine, trip, trip, trip <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, right. This is, this is like an anime. I don't know. <laughs> So they
0: go to the office of Don Valentine. (laughs) Okay. So who was, who was Valentine? Valentine was a famous venture capitalist in the tech industry. Mm -hmm. And he was famous for helping Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak start Apple. Mm -hmm. He owned a venture capital firm called Sequoia and had a few employees. And I guess that the two like trip and and Valentine had met uh, previously a few times. Valentine said he knew of him as one of the marketing guys. So here's Tripp's take on, on why he wanted to talk to this guy. I heard about Don Valentine and thought, this is the guy who I want on my board. So I went to see him. I said, well, you know, here's what I'm doing at Apple. And I'm thinking about leaving to start this company and do other stuff. I was nervous he would be critical of me because I was leaving a big company like Apple, you know? Who the hell am I to think that I'm ready to start a company and, gee, you're leaving Apple in the middle of your project? Aren't you a follow-through kind of guy? Instead, he said, quit dragging your feet. Get the hell out of Apple. When you're ready, I'll provide an office for you. (laughs) So he goes to this dude who he thinks is going to like shoot him down, and the guy's like, fuck Apple. Do your own thing. Now's your chance. Go, right? So this is an important moment. So Hawkins takes him up on an offer for an office. He founds and incorporates his company in 1982.
1: The name, Amazon Software. Oh, shit. I, there had to be something that didn't work out with this. <laughs> and it's that he's one of those guys that can not come up with names that mean anything. <laughs> amazing software
0: with an n and a little apostrophe so uh, yeah, that you know it's amazing probably. and he designed
1: it himself <laughs> and he thinks it's awesome and he has a lot of people telling him that it looks like bullshit but he doesn't <laughs> listen because everything else in his life he can do masterfully so mm-hmm. he he, he doesn't understand the feeling of not being capable to do anything so he <laughs> comes up with shitty names Oh, we'll come back to this name later.
0: (laughs) So he convinces a friend of his, Rich Melman, to leave Apple and join up as well. And over the course of seven months, they worked on developing a business plan. He hires two more people from Apple to come on as producers, and he even brings on a friend who used to work at Atari. By November of that year, there were 11 people working there, all handpicked by Hawkins, including his friend Bing Gordon. So Yay. Bing joins up. Nice. Bing, yeah, boy. Bing,
1: Bing. he followed the call. He, he, did. he was
0: prepared. Nice. He was prepared. He was ready to join. Trip talks about how Bing was just a ton of fun to be around. And he thought of Bing as like his muse. He claims that Bing had all of these really bad ideas, but the really bad ideas would get everybody thinking about the good ideas from a different angle. And that made him like a really good sounding board. Mm -hmm. So it was like this dynamic that worked, like nothing that Bing wanted to do was a good idea that anybody wanted. But if you took like you could take the good parts of his bad ideas and incorporate them into the good ones.
1: So Bing was trips Yoko. Nice. Yeah. Get it. That's cool. So Hawkins has this vision
0: for the company. Talent always needs to come first. It was the most important thing. Without talent, you have nothing else. And that mindset intersped them through the early days. Um, the rest of the people he brought on were people he thought were smart and deserving of positions. He would invite them over to his house to have a meeting and then persuade them to leave their jobs and join his company. So, I mean, that follows, right? With him being this suave dude um, who could, you know, really work a room. And he would go to, like, computer trade shows and just walk around and find game designers. And he'd tell them what he had in mind for his company. And he'd say, I have this company you know, that puts talent first, a company that puts game designers first. And doing this allowed him to recruit a few people that eventually became his core design team. And, and you have to remember that this is really a time when industry abuses were really high, right? Like people in the gaming industry really got treated like shit. Yeah. And so here comes this suave, you know, handsome dude from Harvard who starts telling you you're an artist and singing your praises? He tells you that you're going to be treated like a rock star because you fucking are one? Who would not want in on that?
1: Obviously, as soon as any artistic region gets taken over by corporate people, it gets turned into um, a a terrible environment for the experts. And then they they always show up these charismatic personas that um, are able to huddle all of the frustrated people around them. He is a villain.
0: (laughs) We shall see. Quote, I had this idea of the software artist. I studied all of the business practices of all of the media industries, Hollywood, publishing, and so on. I just tried to copy and steal everything that they were doing and apply it to what we were doing. Here's another quote. Nobody ever really talked about games or software development the way that I was talking about it. I was using terms like software artists. One of their first developers was a guy who was sending games out in Ziploc bags in the mail. Another guy wanted to work for Hawkins so badly that he begged to, that he would even work for free to prove himself. As that guy put it, quote, as soon as I heard what they were doing, I thought, wow, this is big. They were thinking about it in precisely the right way, which was talent-centric. All media, all great media, is created by a collaboration of talented people. The difference between a great movie and a shitty movie is talent. A good book and a shitty book. It's all about
1: talent. One thing, never work for free just because you want to prove yourself. Join the union, get paid. I absolutely agree. Unless exposure can pay
0: your fucking bills, it's not worth it. They're in the early stages of amazing software and they come up with this business plan, but right off the bat, It was clear that the employees did not like the name of the company. You were right, Docs. They hated it. I was right again. So I guess that when they wanted to hold a meeting, sometimes they would head out to Tripp's house to hash things out. So a bunch of employees, as well as some people from a PR company they hired, all went to Tripp's house to talk about it. So how did they decide on a name for a company? We'll talk about this in a moment, but again, you know, Hawkins really saw developers as artists, and he's calling them software artists. So because of this, the most recent business plan that they had had, had started kicking around the name SoftArt. Uh, but there was this other company that was out there called Software Arts, and Hawkins knew the guys who worked there, and they kind of felt that maybe they should ask for permission to use a name so similar. But some people on the team agreed... That they should probably just scrap the name, so they scrapped soft art. Okay, so they just start debating over what they want.
1: Also, soft art sounds like soft art, and that's just terrible. it's just awful.
0: Yeah, I agree. So they start mulling over the like a bunch of words. They're spitballing shit, right? And they're like, okay, well, what about the word like ele- uh, electronics, right? And I guess Hawkins had been calling people software artists. And other employees had been considering them electronic artists, but by calling themselves electronic artists was an issue because it implied that they themselves were the artists. So the decision was made;
1: they would shorten the name
0: and call the company.
1: Are we? Are we doing the fucking Electronic Arts episode?
0: We're doing the Electronic Arts episode.
1: Ding, 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 ding! You have got a fucking winner! What do you win? That I hate all these people now. And I know why. <laughs> and I know why football is going to be important and shit like that. <laughs> We're doing
0: the electronics arts episode. Well, I'm so happy
1: to do the electronics art episode. This is such an important part of video game history. Wow, they have influenced the video game world so much. This is a great. This is so, it's so great to be part of this experience. I'm so thankful to my co-host Vegan Tyler, who. To introduce me to the people that have created the great company of electronic arts. I really am. This is an honest opinion, not by a badger sitting in a chair. You
0: you it is so I have been waiting for this moment for two months to watch you
1: crash and burn.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Once you realize that these amazing people were all starting electronic arts. <laughs>
1: Fuck. And they started it believing that they were supporting video game creators and artists making a change in the world of video game creation they probably will in the beginning right the the, the, the corruption has not set in right so it's you will see okay let's go. <laughs> there's there's a lot of story here oh yeah uh, give it to me <laughs> <laughs> okay
0: yep all right so electronic arts with all the new people, they needed a new office. And I guess that according to Don Valentine, the firm that he owned was not particularly big at the time. And Electronic Arts had grown to such a point that there were more people working out of this single small office than there were at all of Sequoia. Hmm. So they moved the crew out to a brand new office in their, um, of their own up near the San Francisco airport. Apparently... Uh, the office was um, like placed in such a way that you could literally see plane like planes land from the window, like you could look out at the airport. And this was a deliberate choice because Trip thought that they might be hosting developers who would be willing to fly in. So this made it easier for them to get to the office to be like, look, you can literally see the office right up on the hill. Okay, about games. If you wanted to get a good game for your PC at the time, your options were very limited. A lot of developers sold their stuff through the mail because it was really just an industry of hobbyists. Some specialized stores would sell games, but they weren't considered to be profitable. So uh, computer games like weren't really given a lot of shelf space or focus, and you might see them literally just in like labeled bags hanging on pegboards in a store. No box art, no advertisement, nothing to tell you what it is or whether you should play it.
1: I also remember from the PDP-1 episodes and the one of the original um computer games is that among the people that created computer games, there was this philosophy that this was a free art and this was not for profit, but this was for um, for human advance. Computer game creators are this community of people sharing and caring for each other and giving each other games. So these, this culture of making money from computer games would have to develop over time, especially if it comes to computer games.
0: It's true. Yeah. And, and so with that philosophy, uh, you, you would understand why it would be hard to find a game at a time or, or, or to market a game because, you know, it wasn't always about making money. No, yeah. Okay, <clears throat> so knowing this, you know, trip, trip is thinking about this and he, and, and he wants games to be treated in the same way that movies or, or, or records were. And so, um, you know, good marketing, advertising better packaging improved distribution so it wasn't just games being sold in plastic bags apparently as the company progressed they started hiring in like pr more pr people to help out with these things and as gordon put it quote trip had a missionary zeal about games as a social movement the vision was that one day games would be a standard form of media as big as movies and music And furthermore, that interactive was better than passive because it got you engaged and it fired up more parts of your brain. Mm -hmm. We imagined that one day, half of all people would play games every month. People of all ages. We saw games as an art form. So the packaging of games then became a huge focus to Hawkins. Actually, wait, let's just go back a second. I just want to say that like, you and I talk a lot about how games are art. And I've like, like I wrote my senior thesis in, in college about video games as art. And these are the guys that essentially sat down and said, we are going to make sure that this is so. They pushed right? for that, right? Yeah. They pushed for it. Th- that this was a movement to treat video games as art and and to treat software developers as artists and yes, to see this, their work as art.
1: This isn't child's play. These are not toys. This is an um, artistic expression of people. Yeah.
0: Yes, That. that's... It's really fascinating that you say that. Well, hold on to that for a later later thing and maybe even a later episode, but because that thought that games aren't necessarily toys is an important thing that we'll we'll see moving forward. Yeah. Okay. So, <clears throat> so back to the packaging, right? He wants to work on the on the packaging. If you bought an Atari game at the time, it came in these little standardized packages with art on them. Computer games did not have this same air of class. It was completely random what you what you would get, right? But again, often it's like a strange cardboard box <clears throat> or a plastic bag, and Hawkins called it pathetic and totally amateur. Yeah. So he looks at how vinyl records are, are marketed. Records were selling for around six dollars at the time. Side note: I fucking wish that was still true, <laughs> and the packaging <laughs> was standardized. God, I have I have so many albums. Don't ever get into vinyl. It's the worst choice you'll ever make. <laughs> I can't help myself. <laughs> so they're like, okay, um, you know, vinyl records have the fucking coolest, you know, records have the coolest packaging, right? Like, You'd walk in, you'd see this crazy art, and it it would convince you to buy the album because you couldn't really listen to it at the time.
1: Packaging art is underappreciated because it does most, I don't this is a guess of mine, but it does a great part of selling product inside the packaging. Like any album that has a really cool cover will catch your eye and it'll be like, oh, which band is this? And then you'll, you'll, you'll get it because of that. And the same applies to the cover art of video games. It's true. They figured
0: that they could make computer game packages look nice, like you would like an album, an mm-hmm. album cover, but still do it cheaply. So he goes to one of the biggest record manufacturers at the time, and he chats with them. And what they came up with were these little cardboard gatefold album sleeves that had classy video game art on them. And he called his packaging album covers because that's what they looked like. Sweet quote. We were going to use the packaging to express our values, to honor the creator, the artist and the creative process that resulted in the product. That's what mattered to me, the authenticity and the value that was being expressed.
1: Okay. So I like this, but I, 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 Ever since we defined that this is about EA, I hear I hear this this corporate background noise. It is already <laughs> it is it it is it, it is appearing and all of these quotes, all of a sudden they don't sound like a person pushing for art anymore. They sound like someone selling themselves well.
0: I will say that I, I am not necessarily an expert on another human's intentions, but I truly believe that Trip Hawkins believed this in the, yeah, in the beginning. Probably, and I but truly believe that he was pushing for this very hard. And what EA became isn't what EA was then.
1: But and we have also already established that, even though he might also have believed it, but that he also, he was just really good at conveying his ideas. He was. Yes.
0: So this idea catches on. Other companies start using this packaging too. And while the packages had issues, the covers sort of became like a standard at the time. Everybody moved from plastic bags to boxes. Sweet. The company culture sounded like a lot of fun. I read in some interviews that it was a very relaxed place to be. People would drink beer during their meetings on Fridays. Employees used to go up to the roof and smoke weed. It all just seemed to work. The people who were there all seemed to take their jobs very seriously, and they got a lot done. Um, Here's a guy, Bill Budge, um, said something about his time working there. Quote, they were a fun group, it was one of the first places where you'd go in and there were just toys all over the place. People had displays of their collectibles. It's normal now, but that was pretty early and it was all new to me. There was a feeling of playfulness. They released their first round of games in 1983. Six games in total. Trip specifically steered clear of publishing on the Atari 2600 at this time which turned out to be a good decision because the market collapse hit in 1983 Mm, and 1984. It was going to crash, yeah. Instead, he focused on PCs, which were doing well at the
1: time. But he had... Because he had this calculation in his mind, so right, 1982, 1982, the market was going to be ready for PC games. Right, and he was correct. Yeah. Like,
0: how, how crazy is it that seven years previous to, to, nineteen, you know, 1975, he comes up with this number and he was right. He speculated and he was right. Yeah. Good on him. The games, were, the games that they released were kind of random in how well they did, but generally uh seemed to be disappointing in sales. Early reports said that they only made about half as much money as they had wanted to. Gordon Mm -hmm. claims that they almost went out of business. But when people are interviewed about back then, they often talk about how important the company was to getting the gaming industry off the ground rather than what kind of stuff they made. Um, Three of the games from that time were considered to be bestsellers. Hard Hat Mac, a game called Archon, and a game called Pinball Construction Set um i don't think i don't know if they've ever been remade (laughs) but those were the big games at the time
1: it's hard to Mac like the pc uh version of super mario but it's not an it's not a plumber but a a construction worker running through i'm pretty sure
0: oh boy it's been a while since i looked it up but i'm pretty sure it's like a platformer
1: it sounds like one what else should a construction worker do yeah of course except for being like like a plumber jumping around the level there's nothing else Construction. Yeah, they, for, that's what they do for real, right? They jump
0: around. The yeah, I'm zone. pretty sure that's what I've heard. Yeah, so I knew a guy who was a construction worker, and man, his legs were ripped. He could jump like 12 feet in the air. Crazy, sick, shit. dude. Yeah, the double jumps. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> 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 the, d- <laughs> the double jumps really they really work out your calves. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> the market started to shift a bit. And it was getting. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm still laughing about the double jumps. <laughs> the market started. To sh- the market started to shift a bit, and it was getting harder to self-publish in the '80s. Stores were starting to gamble less on small-time producers, and it became more important to attach yourself to a brand. So it wasn't that you could like walk in and be like, "I want you to buy X amount of you know copies of my game." They wanted to start like you know working around brands, right? So. EA wanted to fill that role, give independent producers a place to bring their games and then get them published. Trip apparently picked this up from his time at Apple, with the notion that instead of having a big internal development team, they would let people just bring work to them instead. Further, with computers becoming more of a focus and having the capability to actually run games, they thought that outside developers would be better at creating software than they would be internally. And... It wasn't just that EA would sell the game. It was that they like might give them like development advice and help them develop it too. So if someone had a really good idea for a game, EA might give them access to development kits or tools that they might not be able to afford themselves, which would then in turn allow them to make better games. And they had all these high-tech PCs that people could come in and make games on.
1: So they were turning into a publisher. They
0: were turning into a publisher, correct. Mm-hmm. Developers were to be treated well, though, of course, we know from... Previous episodes, And, you know, the market at the time that this didn't always work out that way in the real world, but it was their guiding philosophy. And in the early days, developers were often given the opportunity to even have equity in the company if they joined up. And then they would get more money if they continued to make games. Mm-hmm. Now, they started taking out ads in magazines, advertising video games, which was crazy at the time. And one of the most famous ones from 1983 is called Can a Computer... Make you cry. It is a two page ad about the company. I'm gonna send you a picture first i want I want you to describe I want you to describe
1: what these developers look like. okay, there's these people. they are mostly dressed in black. Uh, I see one woman, one of them has a leather glove with pins in it. Uh, they all have these this, the same haircut, which is oh, they like, do, don't they? yeah and They do look like heavy nerds that try to look really mysterious and (laughs) sensual in a way.
0: (laughs) I, I, I think of it as like if nerdy computer guys tried to take a picture for their band.
1: Is that guy in the front Trip?
0: No, Trip is not in here, although I can show you a picture of Trip. The guy in the
1: front Uh, has total boss pose.
0: This is an old, uh, not an old, this is a newer picture of Trip, just so that you can conceptualize him. This is from 2019.
1: Mm.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so while you ponder that, um, (laughs) can a computer make you cry? Let me read you the opener. (laughs) Right now. No one knows. This is partly because many would consider the very idea frivolous, but it's also because whoever successfully answers this question must first have answered several others. Why do we cry? Why do we laugh or love or smile? What are the touchstones of our emotions? Until now, the people who asked such questions tended not to be the same people who ran software companies. Instead, they were writers, filmmakers, painters, musicians. They were, in the traditional sense, artists we're about to change that tradition the name of our company is electronic arts
1: wow these guys really are pushing for for the artists feed about it they're not right like often in in games or in if you if you sell games you you go for you go for stats right? this does this and has this amount of mm-hmm. that and that's why it's good but he's like trying to get all sensual about it which I think is a bit off-putting because it doesn't fit the tone of video game advertisement at all. It's really interesting that
0: you say that because I'm going to get ahead of ourselves in the story and tell you that they eventually kind of dropped this idea of software developers as like rock stars, but they were really pushing it in the beginning. Okay, so, you know, black and white picture of the staff uh, they look like a 90s grunge band, right? Yep. They're sitting there, not smiling, just staring into the camera in weird poses. It's the Kelly it, family, but, f- but sad. <laughs> yes. Uh, but it fits with what they wanted to convey, right? They wanted to give off this idea that developers were stars, just like the music industry. <clears throat> so it follows that you would want to display them front and center. And apparently this was Gordon's idea. He talked about why he made this choice. Quote, When EA started, the idea was to make games for 28-year-olds when everybody else was making games for Mm 13-year-olds. We were talking about software that was worthy of the minds that used it. We humanized the culture and the rhetoric of the company, The software artists that EA launched with all gave it so much creative street cred. They had a very individualized idea of games. Games were to be made by independent artists who craft a game and then give it to the world. They mentioned that they hadn't really envisioned massive teams of people working on a product like you see today. So talking again about the ads, Gordon Gordon says, We saw the developers as individuals who were creative. When we did the marketing, Goodby, Berlin, and Silverstein decided to hire a rock and roll photographer. Trip was a student of media. I think it was a little bit of Hollywood envy. We were going to be the new Hollywood without really knowing what it meant. But then the board of EA was sort of against this idea as time went on. They weren't cheap to produce and they weren't sure that they had the intended effect, the ads that is. For example, one of the places that they put their ads into was Scientific American. The board was essentially like, are these people even playing games? Is this really worth it? And they were very focused on just pumping sales instead of creating a brand that people would remember. But interestingly, it worked. People had never seen a discussion of games as art like this before. Nobody had ever seen software developers treated like rock stars, and it brought a lot of hype. Some people spoke about how after the ads ran, if they called a game developer and they said they were from EA, the question back to them was, when do you want to meet? it gave them brand recognition and allowed them to hire the talent that they had always wanted but through all of this they were still trying to find ways to increase sales and keep the lights on one place that hawkins targeted was distributors essentially they would buy games from publishers at a low cost and sell them to retailers acting as middlemen and taking a cut so like you know they would ea would publish a game and then you know these distributors would buy the games from ea and then they would distribute the games to retail stores. Yeah, The distributors often had no idea what they were selling or even how to market it. And Hawkins obviously didn't like this. So he started offering them lower rates. A story he tells about it. Everyone was selling to distributors at 55% discount. I said, we're going to go to some of these distributors and we are going to offer them 52%. Valentine said... Who the hell are you people to think that you could just rewrite any rules of the industry? What makes you think that you could get away with that? I said, we don't really have a choice. Either we're going to pull this off or we're not going to make it. Pushing at a lower discount worked. Don pounded his fist on the table at our next board meeting. And he said, you people have to continue to challenge convention.
1: Yeah, it's also how you start industry wars like that. If you challenge conventions like that and thereby put financial pressures on your competitors. It's just like what happens today between the Epic Game Store and Steam. Epic is throwing out huge amounts of money just to get Steam out of business.
0: Yeah, there's, they're, they're definitely trying to bring that same kind of, I don't know, financial war to internet launchers and i find that fascinating but i don't
1: think that that's a new concept and i don't think valentine was against it because it's against convention he was against it because it was a risk that could lose him money and he probably just wanted safe investments so taking this a step further trip picked up the phone
0: and just started calling retailers to sell to them directly to completely cut out the middleman hundreds of them he called them on the phone and told them what he was selling There were benefits to this calling all of these retailers meant that he could then better educate them on what the products were and what to do with them. Then he decided at one point that the only way that you could get games from electronic arts was to work with them directly. No more middlemen. They would sell directly to retailers. He worked with his sales manager, Larry Probst, a name that we will have, we will use later. So we'll come back to Larry. A side note on Larry. Um, Hawkins recruited him while he was working at Activision, who was their biggest rival at the time. It was kind of a big deal because back then they judged their own success on how they were doing compared to other companies. But again, just remember Larry, he'll come up a whole bunch later regarding this direct sales thing. The big retailers were not having it at first. Nobody wanted to buy from them because they didn't have the name recognition that a large distributor might have. So he started calling up small mom and pop stores and selling to them. He likened it to guerrilla warfare in a city, going room to room, house to house, taking out snipers. But it was difficult. People wanted brands that they knew, from distributors that they knew, and everyone else was a risk. But Trip kept calling. Sometimes people would recognize the name of the company. Sometimes people would recognize the name of a game, and he would make a sale. Larry helped a lot here. Gordon spoke of him as, quote, the bedrock of business intelligence. Apparently, he was very skilled at negotiating and making people feel that they were getting a good deal. As their sales in the organization surrounding it grew, Larry starts taking on a bigger role. EA starts picking up smaller publishers and selling on their behalf. So, you know, now they're just starting to absorb smaller publishers, too, and saying, now you're part of EA. They start shifting their focus from the fact that they had good tech and start talking more about how they can push sales. Suddenly
1: the company becomes very profitable. It is because also because they have noticed that to maintain their philosophy they have to stay in business. And all of a sudden their philosophy is based upon a business model that is turning out to be a bit predatory, isn't it?
0: Yes, so it's it's the constant fight between what do you want To do with artists and and what kind of company do you want to be and what is this internal philosophy that you have about how games should be marketed and how games should be visualized and seen and are they art and then also like you have to pay the fucking bills right and so you will see different flavors of trip trying very hard to inject this philosophy of of games as art into every business decision, but they are still business decisions. Yes. So working with retailers increased their profit margins, forcing stores to directly buy from them increased brand awareness. In the early years, at least, everyone who was there, even the higher ups, were interested in games themselves, and they often played them. Larry, however, wasn't so much into it, but had ideas for things. I guess Gordon and Hawkins just saw Larry as this business guy because that's all he wanted to do and that's what he was good at. And there was so there started to become this division between the guys who were messing around with toys and shooting Nerf guns and the other guys who are pushing sales. Hawkins and Gordon are kind of a rare blend of both.
1: Yeah, it's good to have a mix of both, right? To have several very different sets of eyes looking onto things. I think you need
0: it. You know, it's yeah. like, um, uh, I maybe told this story before, but, um, I had a friend who, um, have a friend who is, um, a scientist. He works at a very large unnamed company and there was talk for a while that he might go become a patent lawyer. And the reason that he would be well-versed in becoming a patent lawyer isn't necessarily because he went to law school or anything like that, but because if you're going to understand the technology that you would try to file patents for. Who better to do it than someone who well understands the technology, right? So, the reason I'm telling you this anecdote is because Trip was kind of like that, right? He mm. understood both the games and what made them fun, and then also the business side of things and how to market this as an industry.
1: Yeah, this gave him a huge head start.
0: So, and and to add to that, you know, Trip was really seen to be something different than those in the industry at the time. My favorite description of him as is half salesman, half technophile. Yeah. He wasn't from a business background. He wasn't an engineer. He was this dude who had been to Ivy League schools. He was cultured. He knew video games because he played them. And it helps that, according to all reports, you know, like I said, he was this super slick, handsome dude who wore really stylish suits. Everybody thought he was really sophisticated. And while other companies are throwing these huge, lavish parties, Hawkins is taking potential people, you know, who might who might want to be recruited out to fancy restaurants. And he just exuded style and people were super into it. And it just made him magnetic. Now, you mentioned this earlier, but remember, Hawkins was a sports guy. Yeah. Even as a kid. Sports were a big part of what they did at the company, and a lot of the early team members would get together and play basketball. Sometimes Trip would show up and shoot hoops with them, which they thought was just like the coolest thing. But, oh <laughs> shit, the boss is out playing b ball with us. Well, right? yeah, by,
1: by now he's like a big, big boss guy. He's not the young dude anymore. The, the young entrepreneur. He's he's for most of them he's a phantom that shows up occasionally and has. Created this legendary company, right? I guess for them it was legendary already.
0: Yeah. Well, it was just so different. It was yeah. this. It was this oasis in
1: the middle of this desert of abuse. And then this guy shows up that has built yeah. this, and he's just he's, he's just like us. He he, all, he he held this ball with his two hands, and then he threw it <laughs> into the hoop. This hoop, yes, wow. exactly that one. I'm never going to
0: wash my hands again. <laughs> he grips the basketball just like I do. Ooh. So. So in 1983, he works with a programmer named Eric Hammond to create a basketball game for the computer. Julius Irving, often called Dr. J, was a big basketball star at the time, and they decided to hire him on as a consultant to make a basketball game. Dr. J got $25,000 for the use of his, his time, his name, and his image, and this was a huge fucking deal for Trip Hawkins. Quote, Dr. J. Julius was my biggest sports hero and I had spent a lot of time as a kid pretending to be him dunking in the hallway outside my bedroom with a tennis ball going into a net made of my sister's fishnet stockings wrapped around a coat hanger bent into a circle and stuck in the crack above my doorway oh (laughs) (laughs) so this is like dream come true for him
1: meeting his own hero yeah
0: and so after dr j agrees to do this They have Dr. J's agent call up Larry Bird, another famous basketball player of the time. They convince Larry Bird to sign up for the same deal. The game ended up being called Dr. J and Larry Bird Go One-on-One. It was a game where you picked one of two players, and then you could play against either a computer or another person. Hawkins claims he did everything on the game. Quote, I designed it down to the last details, including the touch controls and the janitor sweeping up after you broke the backboard with a Daryl Dawkins caliber slam dunk. I produced it. I hired, set the compensation and closely managed every person that worked on it. I made the deals with Irving and Bird, the first of their kind. I I need to call rule 34 on on that video (laughs) game title. No, don't. (laughs) If it doesn't exist, you have to create it.
1: (laughs) I have no choice now. It will happen.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I expect your submission in the Discord later this evening. What do you what do you think about this game docs? Do you think it's
1: going to be good or bad? I do think it's foreshadowing what EA is going to become and that is that they're going to be really good about selling sport franchise games. I don't know that game though. I know another very famous sports game that they made which is not that one. Yeah. I feel like this might fail. But as usual, Trip will learn a lot from it.
0: Well, by today's standards,
1: the game itself was pretty
0: bad. Apparently, the processing power that they were working with, quote, characters that looked like bad doodles and moved like cardboard cutouts. But for 1984, it was absolutely top of the line. Nice. It dropped on the Apple II. It got the number two rank on the Apple soft disc game Chart which then led to it being published on other platforms. The biggest place it was published was the Commodore 64. Atari was in a bad place at this time, and the Commodore was the hot platform to publish on. It sold very well and was a huge hit at the time. It was also, perhaps unintentionally, the first depiction of a person of color on a video game cover. Someone asked him about this in an AMA, and his response was, quote, Honestly, in this moment, I am just realizing that I did that. It was not a specific intention at the time. I just worshipped Julius Irving, and I knew that a one-on-one game where he's up against Larry Bird would be awesome. I am glad today <laughs> that there is so much more awareness and discussion about racism. Our world needs everyone of every size, shape, and ability and color. I hope that I can be part of creating a better world that is more diverse and inclusive. The game is credited as being what put EA on the map. It saved them from the financial hole that they had been in. It brought positive press about the game. Retailers were scrambling to buy copies since there was consumer demand. But one thing that came out of it, much as you said, Docs, uh, was that Hawkins realized the importance and and, um, financial, I don't know, lucrativeness of working with sports personalities. Mm. It wasn't just using their names and putting them on the package. It was actually consulting with the people that they were going to portray. This was the first time that this had been done in the game industry. There weren't really celebrities being put into games in this way, before this point and this is credited as the first game in which you could play as a real world celebrity as a character now there had been games that had licensed things before like star wars for example yeah. but never specifically individuals and this was the first step toward the creation of what would eventually be known as ea sports Do,
1: okay when that okay there's this thing in front of every E8 sports game. Where he says, EA Sports. And then he says something, and I'm I never understand what it is. He says, EA Sports. It's in the game. It's in the game. E8 sports. It's in the game. I, I for some reason my ears can't perceive that. I only hear <laughs> I, I feel like he's saying EA Sports and then he um has a stroke and says <laughs> <laughs> EA Sports. We had a stroke. Yeah, so. <laughs> uh, so That's why they publish the same game every year, right? Because they can't remember. Oh, oh, oh sorry. This, oh, this is cutting too deep. Docs, <laughs> oh, <laughs>
0: <that's, laughs> listen. People who had a stroke
1: are a large portion of our listener base, <laughs> okay?
0: Because why else would you listen to this?
1: Uh, I think people, even people with strokes, have better taste than this. (laughs) (laughs) This is a good set of self roasts, though. We should keep this. Yeah, it's pretty good.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, laughing so hard, I'm perspiring. Mm. (laughs) Okay. So EA keeps pumping out games uh, in 1984. By 1985, they had started distributing games on behalf of other companies, even doing some work for Lucasfilm. They started pulling in a lot of developers who wanted in on what they were offering. EA found that they were getting good at being a publishing brand because they were offering more than their competitors at the time. Apparently, the early contracts that they made with developers were very straightforward. No weird clauses, no backhanded info to try and scrape money off of developers. Just straightforward. We get this much, you get this much. It was very lucrative to developers at the time. As a side note, keeping up with this Rockstar thing, there was a brief time where they were taking game developers to stores on promotional tours. So, like, oh, this is this guy that made this whatever game. Isn't this cool? Don't you want to buy this shit? Like, it kind of reminded me of, like, a book tour or something. Yeah. Um it didn't pan out at all and no one showed up to them. <laughs> and so like they dropped the idea rather quickly. I, I think I read one story where they were like annoyed that the one guy was there in their gaming store and just started like asking him to do shit. Like, well, if you're going to stand around, you might as well work. <laughs> and, like people thought he was an employee. It was just really awkward.
1: Yeah. What's really interesting is that in all of these things that they're trying, not just this, Putting the developers into the in front of the consumer, but also the making really intricate advertisement campaigns and also pushing it as art. This is very current. This is things that now are very accepted, and these guys are just ahead of their time and are not are it's completely misunderstood. Like today, if someone in, in if developers will go into Twitch streams to talk to people playing the game to promote their game, mm-hmm. and people, it's true, people really love talking to developers. Like if you told me, like, oh shit.
0: Kojima is going to be at the fucking coffee shop down the street. You bet my ass I'd drop anything to go talk to that dude, right? <laughs> Let me buy you a coffee, dude. You absolutely fucked my brain.
1: Uh, <laughs> several times. You're <laughs> <laughs>
0: basically blood-related now. It's okay. <laughs> so they kept up with the Rockstar vibe. They would fly in developers and give them all kinds of swag they would show them around, they'd take them on trips for funsies, and in a time when people hated developers and were highly resentful of them, this was something that was really different for a game company to do, to like treat them like people, like no. they're valued. So EA got early access to development tools for the Commodore Amiga in 1985 and worked hard at promoting and publishing for the console. They published a bunch of non-game things for it. The biggest one is called Deluxe Paint which is literally a version of paint that is credited for creating the pixel graphics standard of a lot of games that we saw in the 90s. Which year is this? This is in 1985. So like mm-hmm. a lot of the games that came out in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, are, are based on the standard that were created from deluxe paint. Yeah. So, you know, if you look at a lot of the pixel graphics at that time, you can, you can trace them back to either the original deluxe paint or one of the ports yeah. of it. And games start becoming more complex around this time. But EA, surprisingly, had not really planned for it. Now suddenly, games had actual sound effects. They are hiring dedicated musicians to write music. Teams were, you know, had writers to come up with stories and dialogue. Projects started growing. They started getting bigger. You needed people to manage the teams. You needed people to set deadlines and keep teams to them. So they started renting out apartments for all of these people. Managers inside of EA started cracking down on missed deadlines. Or when directors deviated from the established plan, developers became more pressured to deliver a product.
1: Oh, no. The dynamic
0: in relationships within the company mm-hmm. had changed. Some people were not into the shift.
1: It was happening in small steps already, right? Because there was business mm-hmm. people all of a sudden getting more power. And the the, the, the hybrid people like were, were the, you you can't only find people like that. So now it's becoming this behemoth. That has to be tamed. You could see the breadcrumbs, right, of how Mm. we got there. In
0: 1987, EA leaned hard into sports games. Some sports games of note that they dropped that year. Chuck Yeager's Advanced Flight Trainer, Earl Weaver Baseball, or Skate or Die, which was probably the most popular one from the year. It was part of a series of sports games based on the Epics Summer Games, Um, and this was actually the first game that EA completely made in-house. So notice that shift there, right? They're not just taking stuff from outside people anymore. They're getting more business-focused, and they're starting to develop their own games. Mm. The company continues their identity crisis, shifting between their own internal development and using external developers and saving a ton of money. Eventually, this led to them taking the strategy of finding studios that were successful, buying them out entirely, and incorporating them into EA. The company continues to grow. In 1989, Tripp met with a bunch of his top staff and told them it was time to become disciplined. The company needed to be ready to start pushing out quarter- quarterly results to shareholders. The focus had now officially changed at the top. There's a story at the time where Tripp sent out an email at the company, which, side note, crazy to fucking think that email existed in, in, a, in a company setting in 1989. But here's a story from a guy, Steve Peterson, who used to work there. One morning, Trip sent out an email to the staff asking that people be more efficient. He said, "You should look for efficiencies in your daily work. Take me. When I'm driving into the office in the morning, I make calls to Europe on my cell phone." This was in the days when nobody had a cell phone. We're like, "Are you kidding, Trip?" Or he said, "I get a lot of emails, so my secretary sor- secretary sorts through them and puts the most important ones on top." That's great, Trip. That's very efficient. Can I get a secretary too?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Man, Trip, Trip, he has the best, like, it's so, work is so easy if you just have the right technique. Like, usually I improve my work scheduling by making other people do my work. And all of a sudden I have less work and it all gets done. And I I, I never feel stressed out because I never do any work myself. Why doesn't everybody do this? Why don't they just eat cake if they are starving? When my driver, when my after my driver hands me my car tea,
0: oh my I, pull a, I, I sip it and think about who I might call next. Who would be the most efficient call to make on my very expensive cell phone? Hmm. Yeah, we haven't mentioned Perhaps this I'll...
1: yet, but it was established at the beginning that... Uh, trip has grown up wealthy right I, I think so i mean yeah so he yeah he was in infused with that lack of sympathy for people without money i think
0: so yeah. although it's it's very hard to say and i
1: heavy speculation
0: heavy speculation and i don't know that he would I, I can't speak for him i don't know how happy he would be to hear a statement like that but i think that given the way people spoke about him in the beginning that was definitely the air that he exuded at times Dude, i'd
1: be so proud if our podcast was nuked by by EA to to just be on the pile of things that got nuked by EA, <laughs> how it's, dare you talk shit about our monolithic it's like, brand? It's like Club Twenty Seven, right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, I think that it doesn't matter that your podcast got destroyed. At least you had the sense of pride and accomplishment that you got to record it. <laughs>
1: Did you keep that on a, on a note somewhere to pull to it out as soon as it fits?
0: <laughs> it, it, it just fit perfectly. Perfectly. So, so Trip looks back on these early days. And so to give him some credit here, let's, let's give him some credit. Mm-hmm. Trip looks back on these early days and talks about how he wished he could change some things. Quote, if I could go back in time and change anything, it would be to manage my temperament better. I was young, immature and volatile, subconsciously terrified of failure and could lose it emotionally if my team didn't come to a consensus. I was a passionate leader, but also an immature one at that time. Ironically, I learned this style from my four years with Steve Jobs at Apple. Both Apple and EA were built by a lot of passionate, smart, innovative people that yelled at each other a lot.
1: A whole lot yeah jobs was known for being a choleric
0: yeah and so okay so like just to circle back around like dude knows he he had some issues back then Mm. right but it became clear that the original vision of the company had been pushed to the back burner some of this is attributed to the company growing in ways that they had not anticipated their popularity and brand recognition grew quickly and they had to adjust to new markets that they had clawed their way into or in some ways created themselves Yes, they have made this, right? Yeah, they basically, you know, I don't want to I don't want to give EA too much credit. There were plenty of other businesses around the time, gaming companies that did stuff too, but EA really fucking set the standard for modern gaming. Mm-hmm. And how we think about games. So, you know, the company had wanted the games themselves to be the brand, but eventually the company itself became the brand. It became a signal to consumers that a game was quality. They had thought that game designers would be the focus, that consumers would freak the fuck out when they saw them like movie stars, but instead, people wanted more of the brand itself. And with any company, they eventually start leveraging their brand to make money. With this sense of quality, EA began to churn out low-quality games in the interest of keeping profits high. There was pressure to deliver higher and higher quarterly numbers. Games were not made with the expectation that they would be good they were made with the expectation that they would sell. And it was this weird dichotomy because they had been founded on the the idea of making art. It was in the fucking name, Electronic Arts. But shitty games could make a ton of money if people would buy them. Gordon talked about this. Quote, I was pushing for a don't ship a shitty game because it's going to ruin our customer credibility forever. But pragmatically, it's Well, we've got a bad month. I guess we've got to ship a shitty game. And don't worry, nobody will remember. And then you talk to customers and they remember forever. This growth meant that they needed more staff. How do you manage something that's become this big? This meant that they were often hiring people who had not worked in the industry before because realistically, it hadn't existed. So they were hiring random people from marketing companies or whatever who didn't know how to use a computer or who had never played a video game. People were being given leadership positions who had never worked on a video game before. I think that there's a, I remember a story, I don't have it written down here, but um, I remember a story about like one of the guy, like the higher up guys, he walks in and there's this new person and he's just like, oh, I can't get my computer to work. This sh- I don't know what the hell's wrong with it. Ugh. And he's like sitting there freaking out for like 20 minutes. And this guy just walks over, says nothing, pushes the button to turn his monitor on and walks away. That was the level of computer competence that they had to hire because they just needed
1: people. I would say it's easy to give EA a lot of shit and we like to do it because EA is now kind of the boogeyman of the video game industry and they have more or less earned that title. But people also always blame the destruction of a lot of video game developers entirely on EA, which can be the whole story every time, like Bullfrog, like Maxis. These companies would have had to compete in the predatory market that ea created and they would have not been able to do so on their own it's true and you know
0: perfect segue because 1989 uh, as a little side note, here is when EA partnered with Bullfrog Productions and released Populous, yeah, Populous. which astute podcast listeners would remember that we uh, that Docs told that story in episode four. While we don't need to get into a lengthy rehashing of that episode, the story of that game is an absolutely fucking wild ride, and I still love listening to it sometimes. So yeah, always <laughs> my I, favorite, always uh, favorite things.
1: Uh, twice a day, I take a can of beans and listen to the episode.
0: Okay? <laughs> oh man, you know it's it's. It's good, because when the apocalypse comes, I'm going to have beans stashed everywhere. Mm -hmm. So, just in case. Okay, so, in the early 1990s, the tipping point for the company had come, and it culminated in several events that are worth noting. First, we should talk about developing on consoles at the time. If you wanted to develop on a console, you had to call up the company and get a dev kit. So, if you wanted to make a game on the Super Nintendo or the SNES, you had to get permission from Nintendo to develop then go through all this red tape to even be allowed to touch the system. Apparently, sometime in the mid-80s, Nintendo came to EA and asked them whether or not they wanted to start making games for the NES. Hawkins turned them down. He and other board members didn't think that eight- bit consoles could handle the computer games that they were making, and they didn't want to take the time and manpower to create ports that were essentially downgrades of their work. Because remember, if you're thinking of this as art, why would you want to put a
1: shitty version of art onto a console that couldn't handle it? we We talked about this in the scum episode. Porting takes a lot of time and is very prone to mistakes and it's, true. it's a good way to devalue your brand,
0: yeah you essentially dilute the original product in the hopes that having a broader market will get more people to play it
1: especially in these days where the systems were
0: so different it's true so as you might imagine like hawkins was pretty against consoles at the time and didn't always want to publish on them if he could help it but some and some say that you know maybe in the early days he waited too long to change his mind here and but what's really important to note is that Nintendo was famous for giving very one-sided agreements because they knew what they had, right? They, they had fire and, and they could control it. And they had this huge portion of the market, something like $2 billion worth of sales at the time. And so they couldn't really ignore it anymore. So in 1989, the genesis hit the, hit the market in Japan. And given Nintendo was the powerhouse of the time, Sega starts copying all of what Nintendo did, and they also start throwing around shitty licensing agreements. But Trip sees the Genesis as something worth pursuing, and he starts looking into it. EA was already familiar with the technology used in the console because it was Mm 16-bit. And porting games over to the Genesis would be much easier. But Sega couldn't meet demand with the dev kits that they were sending out. And Trip really wasn't into the awful deal that they would be getting. Now, Atari, not not to bring in another company, but Atari was involved in this weird legal battle at the time where they had reverse engineered technology and got taken to court over it. There were legal fights about whether or not people could even charge licensing fees to develop on a system at all. So Trip has an idea. He tasks his technicians to reverse-engineer the NES and the Genesis. Nobody knows how this happened, but someone acquired a Sega dev kit without permission. They used it to reverse-engineer the Genesis successfully. Then, wherever this kit came from, they sent it back, and no one saw it again.
1: So listen to this shit. They found this company on the basis of creating original art, and they turn into corporate plagiarizers earning their money by espionage
0: they do (laughs) so they wait a bit and they make sure that the tech that they were using in the genesis was both the same in the japan in japan and the united states and the reason they waited is because when nintendo released the nes in, in japan Once they released it in the U.S., it had a new chip built into the the one in the U.S., the U.S. model. And the new chip made it so that you couldn't play Japanese games on the U.S. console and vice versa. They were trying to keep things region locked. Okay, So they wait and they go, is Sega going to do the same thing? And they didn't. So with this in mind, he picks up the phone and he calls Sega and he tells them that they have reverse engineered their console and that they are going to start producing games for the Genesis, with or without their permission. He tells them that he doesn't like their draconian dr- licensing agreements, <clears throat> and it, that if they want in on it, they're welcome to give him a call. What it's up to f- them if they want to negotiate for something better. They could take him to court, but it would be expensive for everyone involved, so he leaves them with this little tidbit of information, and he tells them he wants favorable terms.
1: What the fuck, Trip?
0: What? <laughs> What a fucking power move. Like... Goldfinger, I guess. Um, (laughs) I don't know how I feel about it, but what a fucking crazy play. Like, the potential to backfire? Insane! 4D chess.
1: (laughs) So what do you think Sega did? I'll let you guess. Okay, we talked about Sega before. I remember they were not the most predatory about like they tried to take over the market but just by having really aggressive advertisement campaigns that were adjusted to america i don't remember them to be scumbags like that dick that like like eh. <laughs> so i think they bowed down to them well <laughs> they
0: they get this call and from what i understand they absolutely freaked the fuck out <laughs> they weren't sure if he was bluffing <clears throat> but if he wasn't, it would hurt their bottom line pretty badly. Yeah, they'd be fucked. And they,
1: <laughs> they'd
0: be totally fucked, right? They see the value in what he's offering them. And so they gave EA a very good deal. They even let EA approve their own titles. They did not have to ask for permission to publish anything on the Genesis. Royalty rates were less insane. And they could do a lot more with their own manufacturing without Sega lubing over them. What this allowed them to do was create games for the Genesis faster than other people. They didn't have to wait for the kit. They didn't have to get translated documentation. They didn't have to teach everyone how to use it. They already had everything ready to go in their own language that they could understand. And it gave them an absolutely competitive edge. They created their own dev kit. Oh, God. What Their dev kit this? was better than what other companies had. They strong-armed Sega into letting them publish. Which, side note, um, to those of you who have ever messed around with the actual physical cartridges of a Genesis, um, you'll note that certain titles are taller and have a yellow tab those ones are ones made by EA, because EA reverse-engineered how the cartridge technology would work, but didn't have physical cartridges in hand, so that's their design that they had already created. It works perfectly with the system, but it
1: looks differently. Was this the beginning of the end of Sega? Or did they, <laughs> like, uh, is Sega on that on that pile of corpses as well? You'll find out soon enough Ooh. in a future episode. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So, they released their first two games, Budokan The Martial Spirit and Populous
1: for the Genesis in 1990. Great game. Uh, Peter Munnyu didn't get paid for nearly a year. That sounds about right. Just saying.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps more so than the events leading them here, the plunge into the 16-bit era of consoles is really what took EA to new heights. But the dynamic was different now. When speaking about reverse engineering, Tripp said, "Quote." Sega and Nintendo would have their knives drawn and would be ready to make sure that we never got away with that again. He never gave up on his sports simulation dreams. Some called him obsessed with this game that he had always dreamed about. And this led him to reach out to John Madden. If you don't know who John Madden is, he is a famous football coach for the Oakland Raiders who went on to become a big-time sports personality and sportscaster. He saw Madden as the person who could help him make a game that was authentic. By recruiting Madden, he had hoped that he had saved years of development time. As you might imagine, this was also pretty fucking cool for Trip Hawkins. Yeah. Quote, John did really blow me away too. I played football and could see why he was so successful. He's incredibly smart, a natural leader, and totally domineering. This is necessary if you were trying to get 60 very large men to immediately do what you want. I loved him then and I love him now. It was an incredible honor to work with him and we're both grateful
1: that something amazing came from it. The Madden games is what I think of when I think of original EA games. Me too.
0: I This is totally way ahead of the story uh, but I guess that um, they still hang out sometimes even all these years later and that um, I think if I remember the story correctly, John Madden uh, a few years ago gave Trip Hawkins his original playbook from when he was during his time on the Oakland Raiders Mm -hmm. and Hawkins talked about how it was like one of his most treasured possessions. Wow. Awesome. So he claims that working with John Madden was a ton of fun. I guess Madden swears all the time and is super profane, but then like heavily censors himself when he's on air. And so they make, they make this, this sports game, right? You know, and we'll we'll just colloquially call it Madden from now on because it's become its own franchise And, and Madden did okay on computers, but on consoles, it was a massive hit. But there really wasn't a plan to do anything else with it. Nobody thought that a sequel to a sports game would sell. They were like, cool, we made it. We made this football
1: game. It was awesome. Yeah, I mean, you you made the sport game once. Why would, like, what could you change? And then just selling it a second time, that's just cheap, right? Who would do that? Who would do that? Yeah, I don't know. So here's how Gordon talked about it.
0: (laughs) We looked at it and we thought, we ought to do it again. But all the market research said, no, you can't sequel sports games. The retailers like Toys R Us said, we won't even buy it from you. All you're going to do is obsolete our old game. They said, what are you going to make us return this stuff? It's selling fine. So, like, they're thinking from a cost benefit analysis, right? Like, why would you release another Madden game when the current Madden game? Is selling like hotcakes and everybody wants it.
1: Because they think of these things like toys, which they are not. Exactly.
0: So remember, all the way back to the beginning, Hawkins loved the Statomatic, right? And he's still obsessed with it at this time. And he and this guy, Richard Heilman, would play. So, like, while they were, you know, in between all their shit, they would get together and they would still play this old football game. And each year, this game would release a new stat of player sheets and cards and they would buy them, right? And then an idea came to Gordon. But these guys would stay up all night and open their new cards. We looked at each other and said, it's a new season. There's new players and new rules. We'd buy it. And so we built it. Making football into a franchise coming out every year was something nobody wanted. Everybody thought it was impossible. If you turn back time, there was 0% of people who were market researchable who thought that there should be a second John Madden football. The level of profit from a third-party developer was absolute that they had from a third-party developer was absolutely unheard of. But when the annual Madden releases sold, it locked them into the necessity of then making a new one every year. Now, you had annual sales targets associated with the games. And then it expanded to more than just American football. It became hockey. It became golf. It became soccer, or football, as the rest of the world knows it. This was all internal development. So to support these endless releases, they they bought more studios and absorbed them. Every new idea required new people to make it, and the massive growth continued. They changed their organizational structure to work around the endless development and release cycle. Games were made that were considered to be safe, even if Hawkins did occasionally inject some weirdness into the mix every once in a while. But the idea that EA was a collective of independent artists was over. The experiments had been fun, and they had shaped the industry, but they had largely failed. Treating, rock, uh, treating developers like rock stars was good for recruitment, but it didn't sell. So this decision to keep things internally, right, like to have this internal production studio, tended to be what was the most profitable for them overall. It was much more efficient, and it kept profit margins high. So hot off the heels of hacking the Genesis, Hawkins looks to the future. He sees that the company is set for a solid five years of growth, and he starts to become concerned with consoles. Trying to look ahead, he forecasted that the market would come to be dominated by home systems that came with huge licensing fees. This meant that EA needed to get on, get in on the console side of things. But EA didn't have the funding that those companies did. They couldn't make consoles to take on the rest of the industry in a competitive sense. So he starts talking to hardware companies. Nobody in the industry was making the kind of stuff that he wanted that could do the things that he envisioned. Quote, But then I then went around and talked to all the world's hardware companies and nobody was making the right kind of machine or able to establish an industry standard platform like TV, LPs, cassette tape, videotape, WWW, CD, DVD. I was worried about the future of conflicting proprietary platforms with high costs and exorbitant license fees and companies were beginning to copy all of those things from the Nintendo playbook. Also, there was an issue with companies being unable to establish a standard across devices or mediums. Think of all the different ways that we can listen to music or that you could listen to music in the 90s, right? You might still have your record player. You might have cassettes. You might have CDs. You might have eight tracks. The internet was becoming a thing. You could listen to some digital media. It was kind of limited. So like, think about all this shit going on. And so he wants this standard, right? And then... In 1991, Hawkins received an offer from some people outside the company that seemed like what he had been looking for all along. They brought him something that would not only change EA forever, but the industry as a whole. What is it, you ask? Find out on the next episode of Codex Rex, the video game history podcast. Are you serious? I'm dead fucking serious. (laughs) You gotta wait.
1: Worry not if you are listening to this episode after it just came out the next one will just release in about a week and if you're just listening to this episode because it is the year 2232 and you are studying <laughs> trash podcasts of the early 2000 uh, 21st century it doesn't matter anyway uh, and you're you're close to the end of all the episodes because i i will quit out of frustration after the next one because tyler will he will say that the next one is the last one of this little thing this two-parter that he <laughs> planned but next to like in in three days he's gonna send me a message I'm like oh I, i've stumbled over this ancient cryptic information <laughs> that nobody knew about and i actually have to extend my pair of episodes <laughs> into a 55 chapter <laughs> now you see what's really interesting is that
0: i found all this research and trip hawkins isn't a human he's actually something Something called a dapper demon. Dapper okay, demon. And dapper demons. Dapper demons go back to early Mesopotamia.
1: Okay, don't duck. <laughs> so story. Have to do I go. I, I, I go back to early Mesopotamia in my story. So you leave that. You leave, <laughs> You leave that stuff out of your stuff. That's my We're beefing my over head. turf.
0: It's mine now. Yeah. You don't. You don't get to call claim on early Mesopotamian demon mythology. I'm, I make it's video my game too. episodes
1: about things that are not actually about video games. <laughs> Maybe that's why I like your episodes so much. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I'm really looking forward to the next one. Thank you so much for this.
0: Of course. So do you have like... Any passing thoughts? Because usually what we do is a wrap up at the end, but we're not going to do like a full wrap up on this one because we're gonna we're gonna save it all for for the next part of this. Because the next part of this is we're going to talk about the console that suddenly got wrapped up in all of this business, just to give you a little mm. bit of a preview, and then we'll we'll debrief on all of this shit then. But do you have anything
1: you want to say now? It's kind of an emotional roller coaster. And I liked Trip in the beginning, and I still like him. His picture looks neat. He looks like a, a dapper demon guy that says, <laughs> yeah, boy, a lot. And I was like, yeah, boy. Yeah, boy. Uh, uh, but ever since the there was the big EA reveal, I only, I'm coming up with s- so many mean things to say about this person, and which is not fair <laughs> towards him or the work that he did for the industry. EA has changed the video game industry in such a way that it can only be admired about What it did to the things that we can acquire in very small, very regular transactions to buy cosmetics that give us the feeling of accomplishment and pride.
0: I I literally wrote out a lengthy rant at the end of the next episode that I will just do now. And that is, how the flying fuck do you think that you can get away electronic arts? How the fuck do you think you can get away with the bullshit where before you release the Mass Effect remaster you said you can buy all of the mass effect games for ten dollars and i shit my pants over it because i fucking love mass effect and i haven't been able to play it because my xbox burned up and then I, i i look and i go there's gotta be a fucking catch ea has some way to scam me out of my money and lo and fucking behold 12 year old dlc costs exactly as it did when the fucking it fucking came out how the fuck do you sleep at night you little fucks trying to charge me 90 dollars for a 12 year old fucking game oh hey you remember that really important character that we've been leading up to for three fucking games uh, yeah he's on the disc but you have to pay us 20 fucking dollars to play as him fuck you ea you lost your soul
1: um <laughs> The the biggest pain EA inflicted on me. Maybe we should all share painful stories about EA to get rid of our pain. My most painful story is Command and Conquer Red Alert Three, which okay. because I loved Red Alert One and Red Alert Two, which is like Command and Conquer Two and Four, but in Three they made it a really microtransactiony, mini game filled, not even a real RTS anymore. It was a huge pile of bullshit.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we'll we'll talk about this more in the next episode, but that is kind of the direction the industry is going in. So, yeah. It sucks, but okay, well, this has been Codex Rex, the video game history podcast. I just want to thank all of you for being here and listening to this roller coaster that I got to inflict on
1: docs. We hope all of you have a good week and all of you stay safe and healthy. Take your vaccines and stay nice, nice to each other. Yeah. Have a good one, friends. Bye. See ya.